Welcome back, everyone, to the Sugarcane Podcast. I am Rudy. Hey, and I'm Sheldon, the founder and CEO of Sugarcane. And we're here to give you some more tasty tidbits. What are we talking about today, Sheldon? Yeah, I think we're talking about some history lessons, actually. So diving into history of Bitcoin, history of Ethereum, talking about kind of how they're different and why they matter. So I think that's the kind of general paper what we're up to. Uh, history class. Yeah. One of my... <laughs> Not favorites, but I don't think I really appreciated it until I got older. Not 100%. Like, I think it's one of those subjects that like, you, you don't really like until you realize that when you're an adult, you have to actually know something about what happened in the past. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is, what's going on? Like, like I live in the um, Boston area, so yeah. Lexington, Massachusetts is yeah. nearby. And that's like where the start of like the war happened, like the first shot around the world. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's like right here. This is what the books have been teaching me about. And I didn't even like recognize that until someone told me while I was living here. <laughs> it's okay. You can say you're a complete de- delinquent in, uh, in school. <laughs> I wasn't a complete delinquent, but I was pretty much a delinquent. Yeah, I was definitely <laughs> spending more time on video games than I was 100%. on history lessons. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> But good thing we're here today because we're going to give everyone else a good history lesson that I think is actually really important to understand, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, why they exist and keep up with the drama that goes on between them. So I think we all know Bitcoin's history pretty well. There's a anonymous figure or group of people we don't know, but they're labeled as Satoshi Nakamoto. And this person during 2009, especially during that um, financial crisis, the housing crisis, the timing couldn't have, been, couldn't have been better for something like this to be released. And I definitely want to know, Sheldon, when was your first time ever like hearing about Bitcoin? Um, that's funny. So I went to the school at MIT and in my junior year, sophomore, junior year, around 20, I want to say 2013, uh, 2014, they were giving out uh, free Bitcoin to every student, right? And it's uh, kind of funny. Even at that time, price was pretty low, but I kind of thought nothing of it, to be honest. And maybe try to buy into it. Then at that point, <laughs> my life would have been different. Yeah. I wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nah, different but, um, conversation I, on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's when I first heard about it. Um, but specifically getting actually like involved and interested, I started building a lot of stuff in, I want to say, 20... In 20, what, 17, I want to say, 2016, 2017, I started building a lot of stuff, specifically in Ethereum, just because I was like really cool about how you can actually program money and program value. That's how I kind of got into the space. What you? Yeah, it was with friends. I think we were just hanging out in my parents' basement, you know, playing video games, talking about new tech, and someone's mm-hmm. just bringing up, oh, there's this Bitcoin that's a digital currency and you can buy stuff online with it. And naturally, yeah. my nerdy self is intrigued. So I'm like, free money. Uh, I don't have a job, so how do I make this work? Yeah. But yeah, I think I remember like for any, anyone that knows or remembers a faucet where you can just like go on a website that gives you free Bitcoin yeah. slowly just because they were trying to incentivize people to use it. I think you should actually talk about what is that? What is a faucet? So a faucet would be a pay- web page where you would type in your Bitcoin address and you would receive a fraction of a Bitcoin or a sat. Mm-hmm. And the intended purpose was, 
think two things. One, the person who owned the web page would just receive money for showing lots of advertisements because lots of people were trying to get free Bitcoin. And at that time when faucets existed, it was, yeah, less, a couple bucks of Bitcoin, maybe even less. And it was just a way to get Bitcoin circulating in the ecosystem. Otherwise, if people were holding it all for themselves in that time, it wouldn't spread and you need people to use it to make it valuable. Yeah, pretty much. Um, there's definitely a great way to dispute like um, whether Ethereum or Bitcoin and spread out cryptocurrency because like current on-ramps are pretty hard. So great to have people getting it freely at least so they can actually try out the systems. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I guess, and for history lessons, like how do you view the first or the intended purpose of Bitcoin when it first came out? Yeah, it was interesting because like back in 2009, when it first came out, like early 2009, this is right after the kind of financial crisis. And at the time, it was like peak, like hatred of like the existing financial system. And so people really thought about Bitcoin as a fight against that. Right. So really like completely anarchist in the way of like enabling people to have non-state controlled money and be able to actually have access to something that like no central entity can like mess with or surround and like change like, hey, I can take your money from you. And so that's really where it started. And I think since then, it's really got evolved into like this fully a concept of digital gold. And that's really been a narrative that's been like expanded upon and really captured people's imagination. And to add on to that, like people wanted a safe haven for their money. And this mm-hmm. is what Bitcoin advertised, like you said, decentralized. You own your money. No one can take that from you. And it's self-sovereignty. Like that's that's the goal. Yeah. And then yeah. As Bitcoin developed, more projects were forking Bitcoin, meaning they were just using Bitcoin source code, editing it to what they see fit to make it seem better. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin had that first mover advantage. It was a big push, but it doesn't stop new contenders from coming. Even the founder of Ethereum, Vitalik, he was a big Bitcoin fan. He was a proponent. He loves or loves Bitcoin, or I think he still loves Bitcoin today. He's pretty agnostic in, in terms of crypto. He's definitely an idealist. And that's kind of where Ethereum came from, was the idea of what a digital currency can do. And I'd love to learn your thoughts too, Sheldon, about that transition of what Bitcoin was providing and what <clears throat> the vision was and what Ethereum can do. Yeah, so also kind of a bit of a history lesson. Back in, like, in 2009, um, into like 2000, I think it was like 13, uh, Vitalik was like a big, um, uh, created a lot of blogs and articles about Bitcoin because he's really excited about how like this new financial movement, you can actually construct digital value and have people transact that without having any central entity. Um, and there's also a big project at the time called Colored Coins. And so kind of get a bit complex, but like Colored Coins enabled you to actually be able to create customized functions on chain. So like in the same way that I could move like five Bitcoin from me to you, um, I can also maybe create a separate piece of code, again, smart contract or some type of entity that can do something and then you can interact with it. I can interact with it. No central entity can control that that piece of code. And so Colored Coins came out of like that emergence of like trying to do more with this kind of decentralized network. Um, and kind of if you take it a couple steps further, instead of having it be very specialized that Colored Coins can only do one thing, Vitalik um, thought about how can I actually create a full, like what's called a virtual machine, or like almost like a, computer in the cloud or in like a decentralized network so that it can do anything, anything imagination that people can come up with um, 
and so that was kind of the the, the big uh, start of where Ethereum got its kind of breath from. Like Bitcoin can only do one, th- or we can, Bitcoin can only do like value, and copy coins into like it can do something but not anything. And then Ethereum, the idea is that it can do anything, and that Ethereum came out. I think it was like in uh, mid twenty fifteen. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Got to start. I don't think I even knew about colored coin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I knew about that. I'm surprised yeah, I didn't know either. I'm like, really? I thought I knew them all back then because there was only a handful, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just kind of like a OG lessons. <laughs> I know. Yeah, colored coins, yeah, they, they came out, I think it was like in, when, it must have been like 2012, 2013, when those kind of started coming out because they started to be able to do more with the premise of using Bitcoin as like the basis. But then if you move past colored coins, you can actually do fully like expressive code in a centralized way. And that's also the thing to remember too, is the more you do, there's also more transactions happening on a system. So Bitcoin's transactions versus Ethereum transactions. Can you give us a quick synopsis on the difference? Yeah, so um, Bitcoin, even though it has this idea of being a wealth storage system, like you can actually store money, store value. The actual time it takes is pretty slow, right? It takes about like 20, 10 to 20 minutes to come to consensus or come to agreement about the state of the world. So like if I sent you, um, let's say five Bitcoin again, it'll take about 10 minutes for that transaction to actually be verified. And in the real world, you just can't wait that 10, 20 minutes for something to be actually finalized. But in the Ethereum context, I think it's like 12 second blocks to like, um, it's much faster in terms of like almost the order of magnitude and and how fast transactions can be completed or proved as true. Um, but again, that's in the case of like Visa transactions are on like the millisecond level. Um, so definitely a lot of ways to go. And there's a lot of scaling solutions to get to that. But um, Bitcoin is 10 minutes, 10, 20 minutes. Ethereum is around like 12 seconds. Visa at the top end is like milliseconds. So mm-hmm. kind of give you context to where things are at. And that's the thing too, is like you are... Uh, the idea is to supply the world with the transaction of this money. There's yeah. tens of thousands of transactions happening every second. And yeah. Visa can handle that. That's why they're a great system. Credit card's great. Yeah. And then this is where crypto falls. Like It is not easy to handle mass transactions, especially yeah. for just money and, crypt- and Bitcoin's sake. But with Ethereum, it's money and nowadays NFTs, smart contracts, mm-hmm. interactions with dApps. Those all involve transactions and also all cost time. It's not cheap and it's, uh, yeah, cause it takes a lot of time to do. Yeah. Thankfully though, both systems are working on a scale- scalable solutions. Bitcoin's working yeah. on their lightning. Ethereum's working on layer twos and yeah. a lot more uh, scaling solutions with that. The future is like coming soon. That's that's also the beautiful part about this system is how you're able to grow. You're able to build on top of this code that people can work on new improvements and come to a consensus and agreement to say, hey, this sounds like a good update. Let's all push for it and require all these miners or nodes to approve the update worldwide, globally. Mm -hmm. Now there's a big shift too within the ecosystem of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the proof of work to proof of stake. Bitcoin's still on proof of work. Ethereum was on proof of work for a long time from the mm-hmm. beginning until a year or two ago when they moved to proof of stake. Yep. I want a quick overview on kind of like 
why that's such an important transition for Ethereum and why they kind of went through it and why is Bitcoin still on it? Um, so I think defining POW versus POS. So POW is proof of work. Um, POS is proof of stake. And so a proof of work, which is kind of a way in which blockchain networks can come to an agreement about kind of the state of the world. So if you remember from the last episode where I was talking about like, if you have a ledger, like a kind of state of transactions, and I transfer money to you, that ledger or that state of transactions gets updated to a new state of transactions. That agreement process of like what that new world is, is kind of what uh, proof of work is, is, is meant for. And so the idea is that uh, these computers can run these, uh, essentially an algorithm, and it takes a certain amount of cycles for this algorithm to be completed. And then once they get to the end of the cycles, they come up with a hash or come up with like a number. Um, and that number is then used to create the new state of the world. Right. So again, fairly technical, probably complicated, but the idea is that in the proof of work context, computers are running computations to basically get to the new state of the world. But the difference is that in proof of stake, now you have, instead of having everyone running all these computations competing with each other, um, you now have people who are putting collateral, could bring money up, basically say, hey, I want to be the one to prove the next block or be the person that says what's in that state of the world. And based on how much collateral you put up, that's your percentage of the pie of the number of blocks or number of trans, no, no, number of new states of the world you get to create. Um, and so any questions there before I move on to like why that matters? <laughs> um, no questions, <laughs> but for anyone who's uh, wanting a deeper understanding, don't worry, next episode is going to be all about the miners <laughs> and nodes and get a nice deep dive in what's actually happening. Yeah. But keep, yeah, we'll keep a high level for this one. <laughs> Yeah, so the reason I bring that up is because uh, proof of work is very energy intensive, right? Everyone around the world who are running Bitcoin nodes or Ethereum nodes, this is last year, um, they had to all be running computation, burning energy, right? So what happened in around like end of last year, around I think it was like October, um, I was actually at a watch party watching like the transition happen. <laughs> um, Ethereum moved from proof of work to proof of stake. And so in proof of stake context, it's now a lot more energy efficient. You don't actually have to have everyone running computation because now instead of everyone competing on the competition on the computation side, you now basically have to put up money, put up collateral and be the one to actually have your share of the pie of be the person who creates the next block. And so I think I kind of forgot where I was going with this. Is that the question? Well, no. Well, that's what you're saying is so it's yeah. like accurate and the idea behind that too is it's kind of scary to hear, oh, I have to put money up to participate in Ethereum's proof of stake now. Yeah. But you don't have to put a lot. The requirement for a full node, a solo node is 32 ETH. But there are plenty of options and protocols that are providing um, like a pool where you put 0 0.1 ETH or 0, 0.00 ETH. One, <laughs> not zero, 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 but zero, zero, one. And that way you can still participate in this pool of staking and collect rewards for helping out this network. Yeah. So anyone can participate. And it's also a little bit more uh, friendly towards new people because of proof of work, you have to buy a piece of electronic device, a, a miner. It's pretty much a computer that runs a certain algorithm over and over and over again. You have to leave that running in your house, which is, again, expensive and kind of keep an eye out for it. 
If you're going to just participate in proof of, st proof of stake, you can do that with many options like Rocket Pool or Stakewise. Uh, there's more coming out. And then if you want your solo staking, then you would have to, again, host a little computer at home. But thankfully, it's not as energy intensive. You kind of just have to leave it connected to the network. There's so much to go into those two, though. Don't <laughs> like that's just high level people. We're gonna like we're gonna go deep into it. Yeah. And I and I feel like there's also a lot of controversy between these two. If if you've been keeping up at all, you're probably screaming at us right now. Like there's so much more to it. You can't just leave it off like that. Don't worry, we're not. But I, I think this kind of wraps up today's episode. It was a it was a good one because it was history, some brief technicalities, and a good prep for next week. Yep. All right, guys, see ya. All right, see ya. <laughs>